My name is Brianna Lassen. I'm on the Political Education Committee of Philly DSA. Welcome to tonight's session of our Marxism and Politics lecture, lecture series, which tonight will take the form of a debate. So the idea for the Marxism and Politics lecture series emerged a little over two years ago in the wake of remarkable political and ideological transformations in American politics. As the U.S. entered the new Gilded Age and the political and economic illegitimacy of the system was laid bare, Bernie Sanders' twin presidential bids broadcast to a national audience that a more equitable and just society is possible. At the same time, in workplaces across the country, workers have rediscovered the power of collective action. Though unionization rates are at their historic nadir, 2019 saw the greatest number of strikes in American history since 1986. The resurgence of labor militancy and the immense enthusiasm for universal social programs have marked a sea change in political discourse. With these developments, there's been renewed intellectual interest in the Marxist tradition, particularly Karl Marx's description of society as a class society. Through this series, our chapter has attempted to cultivate this re-energized intellectual and political activity by inviting strategists and left scholars who've begun to seriously engage with questions of how not just to interpret the world, but to change it. Tonight, we're delighted to be joined by two esteemed speakers, Dr. Mark Paul and Matt Brinnick. The coronavirus crisis and the ensuing economic recession has only strengthened the case for bold economic reforms. Though the left is able to choose among a menu of policies that are not necessarily at odds with one another, in fact, they often can complement one another, part of the challenge we face as socialists is selecting which non-reformist reforms to advocate for first in order to build upon them. So tonight, the question on the table is, should socialists fight for a job guarantee? Speaking in the affirmative is Dr. Mark Paul. Mark Paul is an assistant professor of economics and environmental studies at New College of Florida, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a senior fellow at Data for Progress. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. He's also written extensively for the need for a job guarantee and he's currently working on a book called Freedom is Not Enough, Economic Rights for an Unequal World Under Contract with University of Chicago Press to be published in 2022. Arguing against a job guarantee and in favor of other policy programs instead, such as unemployment insurance, producing more public sector goods, just to name a few, is Matt Brunig. Matt Brunig is a policy analyst, commentator, and founder of the left-wing think tank People's Policy Project. His writing has appeared in a range of publications, including the New York Times, Current Affairs, Jacobin, and the Washington Post. Matt has been a longtime analyst and expositor of a host of left-wing proposals, such as single-payer health care, universal child care and housing, and social wealth funds. And one of his major contributions to the left discourse is discovering high-quality trucker memes. So thank you, Matt. Before we begin the debate, I wanna make a couple of brief announcements. First, I wanna let everyone know that we'll be recording the event. And um, then I wanna just give a brief review of the format. So the format of tonight will loosely follow an Oxford style debate. Speakers will present opening remarks for 10 to 15 minutes. 
Following opening remarks, the speakers will respond to the opening statements. There will be a question and answer period. And during this portion of the debate, you'll have an opportunity to ask the debaters questions in the chat. And then the debaters will deliver some closing remarks. So with that said, I'll leave it to Mark to make his opening statements in the affirmative for a job guarantee. Thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here with you all this evening. Uh, big thanks to Brianna and Tyler for organizing this event and for Matt for uh, agreeing to engage this evening. Uh, Matt and I have, have long uh, you know, gone back and forth on these issues, so it'll be fun to, to do so again. Um, so tonight I'll, I was asked to talk on the idea of a federal job guarantee, an idea that I've worked on for years now, primarily with two of my co-authors, uh, William Darity and Derek Hamilton. Uh, two fellow economists. I'll spend most of my time talking about the idea of a job guarantee, but I briefly want to say um, that you know no single policy is a panacea, and I think that we tend to to think about this um, in those terms too frequently. And I was grateful to for Brianna's framing that um, you know these programs are not necessarily either ors, but it is important for us to think about um, you know where our priorities should lie. We can't put our you know limited political power behind absolutely everything at once, um, and, and priorities do matter. For me, the fundamental goal here, as you might have gathered from the title of my book that I'm working on, is, is economic rights, which is basically ensuring that everybody has their basic rights met, their basic needs met, housing, food, um, access to the internet, um, you know, um, access in my case to employment and, and, and or sufficient income to live a dignified life um, and things of this nature, education, clean environment. Now, you know, is this socialism? No, not exactly. It's not socialism, right? Socialism is, is um, public ownership over the means of production and <clears throat> embedding the economy in society rather than today we have a situation where society is unfortunately subservient to the economy, right? Socialism is, is redirecting our means of production and our collective productive capacity to serve the public's interests rather than to serve the capitalist class and profits. Um, that said, I do think things like a job guarantee and a basic income are both important measures in, on the road towards socialism. So I want to start um, actually with the socialist Michael Harrington's brilliant 1962 book, um, The Other America. Um, Harrington, you know, really brought into light the dire poverty of large swaths of the American population, particularly in the South and particularly among the Black communities. Um, Harrington spent a couple years of his life working on the Bowery, and there's a, a great film on the Bowery uh, that I encourage you all to check out if you have the time. And, and Harrington really talked about the fact that, and I quote, being poor is not one aspect of a person's life um, in this country. It is his life. To this, the only truly human reaction can be outrage. And I think Harrington was absolutely right here. And, and I do want to say that I, I do believe that Matt and I share the goal of, of abolishing poverty. Um, and the question is, is what are the best pathways to do that? Now, Harrington's work, you know, set off um, a massive discussion in this country about poverty, and it helped lead to John, President Johnson's war on poverty. Um, unfortunately, we know, you know, more than 40 years later that that war on poverty was, was largely a failure. Now, it's true that the existing social safety net that we, you know, the threadbare safety net that we have um, 
does exist. It does have massive gaps, but nevertheless, it does reduce poverty roughly by half compared to what it would be without it. So, you know, you know, we should be, I think, aware of that fact. Um, but today, nevertheless, we still have, just as when Harrington was writing, officially 40 million people living in poverty. If we actually go by the OECD statistics rather than the absolutely ridiculous statistics that America bases uh, the official poverty count off of, which gives Americans a quote, reasonable chance at acquiring just enough calories uh, to live, um, then we actually have you know, at least 60 million people that are in poverty here in the United States. Um, this, funny enough, happens to be about the same number of people uh, that were poor when Rosa, President FDR was talking about having a nation that was one-third ill-clad, one-third ill-housed, and one-third ill-fed. So we know that um, we've been utterly failing uh, at, at our fight to, to, you know, ensure everybody a just and dignified life in this country. Now, the goal that that I want to focus on is providing universal full employment, and that's a goal that, um, you know, to a degree is controversial on the left. Um, but it has been, I'd argue, the longest standing demand of the left in the United States. Um, that's ranging both liberal and socialist thinkers in this country. Um, and <clears throat> primarily the reason is because, you know, many thinkers um, ranging from Debs to FDR to King to Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph believe that providing full employment was the keystone to not only eradicating poverty, but also to providing workers with a reasonable fallback position so that they actually could engage in more militant collective organizing and actually properly stand up to the capitalist class. Now, when I talk about full employment, I'm not talking about full employment as economists traditionally use it today. Today, when economists say full employment, they're talking about four to 6% unemployment, something called the NIRU. Uh, it's basically the non-inflationary unemployment rate. Um, you know, what we're talking about in terms of full employment is everybody who wants a job has one at non-poverty wages. That is essentially the Keynesian definition of full employment and the one that I believe that everybody on the left should be acquiring. Now, it's true that the U.S. actually at one point historically did near full employment. For three years during World War II, um, the U.S. brought unemployment down to an average of 1.7%. And those were really just workers that were switching between jobs at the time. Um, and that era not only led to some of the most um, vibrant um, growth in trade unionism, but it also led to some of the most um, robust um, uh, increases in workers' wages and living standards that the country has ever seen. So there's a very strict line between full employment and increasing living standards for workers. Now, the most direct way to provide full employment is through what we call a federal job guarantee. And in essence, what this is, is a public option for employment um, in the United States. Now, in our proposal, what we call for is an average wage of about $32,000 um, plus benefits for those workers. And that wage would indeed be indexed to inflation. That way, you know, we wouldn't be eroding this as, as we have, have you know, inflation from year to year. Um, the program would essentially be run through the Department of Labor, where the Department of Labor would administer grants, 
to eligible entities, whether that be state governments, county governments, city governments, and the like, uh, Indian nations, um, in order to engage in uh, projects that those entities and, and through a participatory process uh, with the, the local population deem to be meaningful. So, you know, some counties might decide they want to prioritize having workers engage in decarbonizing their buildings. Other counties might want to have workers help them in building, um, you know, sidewalks and bike lanes in order to increase, you know, pedestrian and bike mobility. Other communities might deem it's bet, you know, California, for instance, might, might put millions and millions of people into work and forest management work, um, you know, basically harking back to the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, which was a tremendously powerful organization that employed three and a half million people during the Great Depression to build our national parks, national trail systems, and other valuable resources that I hope many of you have a chance to get out and, and see for yourselves and, and, and use. Um, so, you know, the, the program isn't only just about putting people to work, but more importantly, it's about providing them with, a dig with dignity and with purpose and allowing them to give back to society in meaningful ways. And the thing here is that not only will the workers who are actually engaging in the program see tremendous benefits, but society, the rest of us, will be able to benefit from their labor that they put forth um, towards promoting the public good. Now, you know, um, I, I know that that many opponents to this idea, including Matt, will talk about a job guarantee as workfare. Um, and that's a notion that I, of course, um, completely reject. Um, and, and let me just say, you know, a lot of people ask, well, you know, what could these workers do? And I just ask, let's look back to the WPA to think about what those workers accomplished. They built over 650,000 miles of new and improved roads. They built roughly 40,000 schools, many of which are still standing today. They um, built over 4,000 different utility uh, plants to produce power, many, in many instances, producing power for households that were long going without um, you know, basic electricity being met. They performed over a quarter million concerts, hundreds, tens of thousands of murals. I could go on. Many of these things we still benefit from today. Actually, as a matter of fact, uh, I was hiking just a few, just earlier this summer, and I got to spend two nights in a cabin built by the CCC. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful, and it was still there, you know, 80 years later. Um, and I challenge each and every one of you to walk outside into your community, look around, talk to your family and loved ones, and ask if there's meaningful work to be done in order to improve our society, whether that be care work, whether that be work to decarbonize the economy as quickly as possible in the face of climate change, which poses an existential threat, not only to future generations, but, but to us today as well. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe that a job guarantee can indeed um, eradicate unemployment, drastically reduce poverty, and simultaneously provide us with vital goods and services that we all want uh, and deserve collectively. And, you know, most importantly, this program, I shouldn't say most importantly, but importantly, this program actually has a rich American history. And I, I think that's important, not only for actually passing the program, but for um, bringing, you know, for, for durability and for bringing voters who might be resistant to such a program on board in the first place. 
you know, Matt does a lot of excellent writing on Norway and Finland and on other, um, you know, Northern European countries, which, which I've learned a great deal from. Um, but if I look at Senator Sanders, one of his biggest mistakes to me was on the campaign trail, constantly talking about the Nordic countries rather than talking about the radical tradition we have right here in the United States historically. Now, you know, is that a little bit nationalistic? Absolutely. Is that a path that I think we should all be cautious about? Yes. But it is also a path that helps us broaden the socialist base here in the United States? I think so. We can look to um, the founder, Thomas Paine, through FDR, through the civil rights movement, and Martin Luther King, who was, a, you know, in many ways, a socialist, and, and the clear socialists of Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph, all of which argued strongly in favor of the top priority being a federal jobs guarantee. We remember back to the 1963 March on Washington, the full title of that march, which many Americans aren't aware of, was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Jobs came first and was the primary demand of the civil rights leaders. Why? Because they knew that jobs were crucial to actually providing full citizenship rights. Today, we have political rights, um, although rights that are certainly under siege and being stripped away by this current administration. We have civil rights, same thing, rights that are being, um, that are under siege by this current administration. But what we lack is economic rights. And a, the right to a job is the most fundamental economic right that will fundamentally transform labor power in this, in this country and allow for an upsurge in unionization in worker mobilization, um, and in the production of uh, vital goods and services to improve our daily lives. Um, the final thing I'll say is that this has also um, nearly become law at multiple different stages in American history. Back in 1946, um, as part of the Employment Act, which passed initially contained a job guarantee, which was unfortunately stripped out. More recently in 1978, which created the modern Federal Reserve's dual mandate. The, man, the mandate the Federal Reserve has is full employment and price stability, but initially it was just price stability. Um, but the work of um, job guarantee advocates created that mandate of the Federal Reserve that we see today. And unfortunately, initially created a, a actual full federal job guarantee and that has been, been stripped out. But I wanna come back to the idea that a job guarantee by itself will not fully eliminate poverty. And a job guarantee by itself is not going to address all of the ills that we see. What we should simultaneously be working towards is what um, the economist John Maynard Keynes, I, I strongly argue that the greatest, uh, one of the greatest economists of the, the 20th century uh, argued for was the increasing socialization of investment, which is the notion that we should be continuously moving um, uh, work and the production of goods and services from the private sphere to the public sphere, bring it under public control and management. Um, and through this was the only means through which Keynes believed we could secure uh, permanent full employment. And, and, and I think that that's right. So to, you know, while the job guarantee is a, a vital step here, we need to have complementary measures um, like the Federal Reserve being willing to run a permanent hotter economy and like the increasing socialization of investment, many of um, which planks were included in Senator Sanders' 2020 platform, things like uh, Homes for All, um, Universal Broadband, and you know, we could go on. Um, but a jobs guarantee needs to be central to the socialist cause in the United States 
to eradicate unemployment and um, importantly, racial discrimination that has long torn the left apart. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, and we'll pass it on to Matt in the negative. Um, and just a reminder to everyone uh, to enter your questions into the chat um, if you have them as they come up and to sign into the Google form. Okay, Matt, take it away. All right, so uh, to my way of thinking, uh, the best way to understand the job guarantee proposal is to take a step back and talk about the welfare state as a whole. I think uh, U.S. discourse, even uh, you know, among socialists, does not does not do a great job of thinking about the theory of the welfare state, what it does, what's it, what it's for, what it should do, and so on. And this can sometimes leave us rudderless when trying to understand various welfare proposals and how those proposals fit together into an overall welfare system. So. Let's talk about the welfare state for a second, and then I'll go directly into the job guarantee. So one of the primary purposes of the welfare state is to provide income to people who are not currently working. And there are essentially six kinds of people that fit that description in our society. You have children, you have elderly people, you have disabled people, you have students, you have caregivers who are of course working, but not in the market and you have the unemployed. And a good welfare state has a cash benefit for each of those six groups. So for example, children receive a child allowance, which is a monthly check paid to their parents in a lot of countries, not in the US. Elderly people and disabled people will receive old age and disability pensions, which is provided through social security in the US. Uh, students receive tuition subsidies, living grants like Pell grants and public loans. Caregivers will receive paid leave or other kinds of caregiver allowances, not in the US, but in a lot of other countries. And then lastly, we have the unemployed, which is the subject I would say of our discussion today. And in most cases, even in the US, unemployed people receive periodic cash payments from the government that we call unemployment benefits, unemployment compensation, unemployment insurance, etc. These payments are structured differently in different countries, but the way I would structure them and the way we actually kind of do in the US, though not, not quite to the level that I would like, um, is you basically pay unemployed people a, a high percentage of what they used to make when they were working. So say we're gonna cover 90% or even maybe 100% of the income that you used to have before you lost your job. And then there's also a minimum benefit that you can't go Below. So recently we had a minimum benefit of 600 a week in the US for a couple of months there during the pandemic. That was sort of the minimum benefit. So the basic setup there is if you're unemployed, you get somewhere between the minimum or a high percentage of what you used to make. And, and you're supposed to continue to receive that until uh, you get a job. That's sort of like the ideal generic structure of unemployment benefits. Now, that unemployed people deserve to receive some kind of cash from the government is something I don't think uh, many people and certainly I don't think Mark would disagree with. So the disagreement really arises when we start talking about what kind of conditions we want to place on the receipt of unemployment benefits. That is, should we require unemployed people, what should we require unemployed people to do in order to keep their benefits flowing? 
And this, uh, as you might expect, people have been fighting about this question for a long time, probably will fight about it forever. Uh, but in general, I think we can think about conditions for the receipt of unemployment benefits as sitting on a spectrum from loose requirements to strict requirements. So the loosest requirements would be no requirement at all. So as long as you are not employed and you self-certify, hey, I'm still looking for work, I'm job seeking, you get your unemployment check each week. One notch up from that would be to require some verification of job seeking activity. So we might require people to submit a couple of job applications each week and to tell the welfare office, hey, I applied to X, Y, and Z companies, give their information, et cetera. The next notch up might be uh, requiring unemployed people who are receiving benefits to come in and do job counseling, do training, do education, something like that. And then the final notch on the spectrum uh, would be to require them to do what is often referred to as work-like activities in exchange for their unemployment benefits. I know Mark says he, do he doesn't like this terminology, but it is what it is. This is called workfare, you know, even in the academic writing, it's called workfare. It's been called workfare in the US since the 60s and 70s. So um, that's what it is. That is sort of the highest level of conditionality for receiving unemployment benefits or receiving any kind of benefit. Um, in the US, we have, I don't think ever attached it directly to an unemployment scheme, but we've attached it to temporary assistance for needy families, aid to families with dependent children, uh, the food stamp program, SNAP, um, at various points in the last 50 years. Um, and so that's how I view it, right? The job guarantee is, is just a particular way of branding the workfare approach to unemployment benefits. Um, and the proposal is basically that in the same way that we require certain kinds of criminals to do a certain amount of hours of community service to pay off their debt to society, so too should unemployed people be required to do community service to receive their benefits. Um, so with all that explanation out of the way, the question we really need to be honing in on is, what kind of conditions do we wanna place on unemployment benefits? Do we want loose rules? Do we want strict rules? Do we want something in between? I take the job guarantee position as being we want strict rules, we want workfare, we want full blown, you need to go and do 20 hours of community service, 40 hours of community service, whatever it might be, in order to get your benefits. Now, my view is uh, that is the opposite, um, that in general, it is not good to put a lot of conditions on the receipt of unemployment benefits. Uh, the, the initial reason for this is any condition you put on uh, the receipt of a certain kind of benefit will result in some people not meeting that condition and thereby having their benefits cut off, which of course means poverty, hunger, homelessness, and all the rest of it. Um, and of course, even people who manage to satisfy the condition do so by enduring harassment and time wastes that make it harder for them to get along in life. And in this case, harder for them to get back into a normal job. As we've seen this very clearly in TANF, um, temporary assistance for needy families, uh, people who do ethnographies of uh, people on those programs who are required to do 10, 15 hours of community service consistently. They get people coming back saying, I cannot search for work. I'm stuck going and driving to do this BS community service every day or every week. Um, now, to be fair, obviously you would want to weigh these negatives 
some people not losing their benefits because they can't meet the conditions and other people being harassed because they have to meet them. You'd want to weigh those negatives against the potential positives of the program. But the problem is, as I see it, there really aren't very many, if any, positives to it, at least from a left-wing perspective. The usual justification for workfare requirements is that it motivates people to find work more quickly because workfare is more unpleasant than receiving unemployment benefits without strict conditions attached to them. So folks like Randy Ray, Bill Mitchell, and Warren Mosler, they've all made these points. Um, but harassing people makes them more willing to take up work, which is their position, is usually not something progressive people find very attractive. To be clear, I'm not saying Mark uh, argues for it this way, but there are a lot of people who do, even those who have uh, more recently found their way on the left. So these days, JG advocates are more likely to sell you on some progressive positives to the program that are simply bogus. So for example, the big one these days is they promise that workfare workers could be used to provide any and every public service you could imagine, from building bridges to doing childcare. In reality, you can't do big complicated inf infrastructure projects or provide consistent and high quality public services with whoever happens to be unemployed this week, right? So we absolutely need to expand our public services, but we know how to do that. And it's not through workfare. So you guys are in Philly, and I assume there are a bunch of public services and public workers already employed doing good stuff there. Firefighters, librarians, parks workers, teachers, bus drivers, and so on. Did you need workfare to build those services? No, obviously not. Nor, crucially, could workfare build them. You build public services by creating a new entity, giving it money, and having it go out and hire people who are up to the job whether those workers are currently unemployed, currently employed in some other job, fresh out of college, whatever. You don't restrict yourself to whoever happens to be on the dole right now, uh, whatever their skills and experiences might be. That's not how you build any kind of service. Uh, you know, think about a private company. <laughs> you know, we, we wanna build high quality services. It's not all comers. You go and try to find the people who know what you're trying to do. Um, anyways, beyond the silliness to my mind, about what you could realistically produce with this kind of workfare. The other thing JG advocates tend to do these days is make uh, all sorts of claims about how much unemployed people really want to do workfare. And on its face, this claim is hard to believe, of course, because any unemployed person who wants to do community service style volunteering can do that without conditioning the receipt of their benefits on it. Indeed, anyone could do community service volunteering if they'd like to. So why would you ever need to make them do it on the threat of having their benefits cut? But aside from that logical point, there simply is no, no reason to believe workfare makes people feel better than strict unemployment benefit regimes or than less strict regimes, right? So we have all sorts of historical evidence, especially in the United States of how miserable people on workfare regimes typically are. They say things like the work sucks, it's not helping them get a job. And in doing the work, other public sector workers bully them <laughs> and look down upon them, mostly because they see them as a threat to their much more secure jobs. It's not a good experience. JG advocates wind up deluding themselves into believing that just because you make an unemployed person do community service for their benefits and then call it J-O-B, that this means those people will no longer suffer from the anxieties and other pains that unemployed people go through. But a make work job is not a real job and the main anxieties unemployed people have, I know because I've been there, 
is how long will it take them to get back into a normal job and whether they'll be able to make as much money as they used to and things like that. The anxiety is uncertainty about the future and making someone rake leaves in the park in order to receive their unemployment benefits does nothing to resolve that anxiety. If anything, it makes it worse. So the JG neither delivers for the public nor for the individual. It takes the noble goals of providing income support for the unemployed and providing services to the public and then combines them together in a way that actually undermines and degrades both goals. Unemployed people should receive a cash benefit while they look for work, as well as job seeking assistance and other non-coercive active labor market policies. And on the other hand, public services should be expanded and provided with a workforce hired in the same way that we hire teachers, bus drivers, and park rangers. Don't cross the streams, <laughs> say no to the job guarantee. Thank you. That was my initial comment. If I could just brief, brief response to, to some of the things he said, is that appropriate or should I wait to the next period? Uh, do you mind waiting till the panel discussion? Okay. Thank you, Matt. Um, so now we're going to have the intra-panel discussion where you both can respond directly to each other before we open it up to questions. Um, so I'm going to um, give you a one-minute warning. I'll give you about three minutes, but I won't. It won't be like a hard cutoff, but just keep that in mind. Um, so, so Mark, um, if you could respond to Matt's opening remarks specifically, if I could guide it a little bit directly to the workfare question. Um, thanks. Yeah. Uh, th uh Thanks for those remarks, Matt. I, I think it's interesting sometimes that you identify as a socialist because really here you're taking the exact lines of Hayek and Milton Friedman, as a matter of fact, um, and really undercutting our collective faith in the state, in the public sector. Um, and, and for me, I, I, I do find that that troubling. Um, you know, I think, you know, you, you mentioned the crossing of two streams. I, I think you and I are in full agreement that we should, you know, one of the best ways to reduce unemployment and to reduce the effects of the business cycle on workers prior to transcending capitalism is for a significantly increased state where those workers wouldn't be utilized as a buffer stock. I, I think we're in agreement there, right? That's one of the rivers you mentioned. But then the question is, what do we do for those workers that that unfortunately are, are forced into unemployment, um, you know, into the reserve army of the unemployed, as Marx would say? Um, and you associate a job guarantee with with workfare. Now, let me back up here and say, first of all, I am not arguing for the abolishment of unemployment insurance. I think that we need to strengthen and improve unemployment insurance. Um, I think that, you know, there's there that it needs to be a nationalized program, that workers need to be provided with significantly better benefits. And I think Matt and I largely agree that, um, that you know, there actually should not, you know, I, I would argue for, mo you know, moderate activation requirements, um, you know, for some given set period of time, let's let, you know, uh, you know uh, we, we can debate how long those would last. And then the question is for workers who are freshly entering the workforce or for workers who are, um, you know, long-term unemployed and haven't been able to find a job, or for workers who are on unemployment insurance and choose to go choose to go into a job guarantee program, then I don't think that's fair to characterize that as workfare whatsoever. Now, what is freedom? Freedom is actually a choice, right? Freedom, um, as we traditionally use it in the United States, is thought of as negative freedom or negative liberty, the right from interference. But 
Um, if we think about um, also positive freedom, the right to a job, the right to healthcare, the right to housing, this distinction was made by the philosopher Isaiah Berlin. All a job guarantee is doing is providing people with freedom. It's saying people can opt into this program. Okay, They can choose to work if so desired. Now, I think that a job guarantee should be coupled with some form of a negative income tax and indeed with stronger um, unemployment insurance benefits. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Um, but the idea that workers put to work who are temporarily laid off, or if we look at the long-term unemployed, of which there are millions in the United States, laid off for at least half a year, that these workers can't contribute meaningfully to our society, I think really undermines our collective ability uh, to imagine what the government has done. And all we need to look do is look back to historical precedents and see that many workers through the CCC, the WPA, and other direct employment programs in the U.S. have uh, done tremendous work that not only brought dignity to them, but also improved the lives of those around us. And the final remark I'll mention is um, Kaysen um, Deaton recently wrote a book called Deaths of Despair, where they show that the life expectancy in the past three years has fallen in the United States. First time that's ever been observed in a high income um, advanced capitalist society. And they attribute this to what they call deaths of despair, which is, you know, people are unemployed and don't find dignity and meaning in work. When people are unemployed, you see suicide shoot through the roof. You see depression shoot through the roof. And you see um, uh, divorce also increase. Now, whether or not divorce is good or bad is a complicated question. Um, but regardless, we do indeed see many um, indicator, negative mental health indicators associated with unemployment. And all I'm arguing for here is providing people with an actual choice to enter the labor force if they so desire. Thank you, Mark. Um, so Matt, how would you respond? Yeah, so uh, first let me, uh, I'll do the, the responses that I had planned out and then I'll respond to those responses. So I think it is very important to talk about poverty. Poverty is the most important issue. I know Mark spent a lot of time on his, on his speech, uh, which I didn't expect, or I would have spent a little bit more time on mine. Uh, but I think it's really important to understand that poverty reduction is not primarily a function of work. It's not primarily a function of uh, getting unemployed people to work or anything like that. And we, can, we know this because we can look cross country. So for example, if you do look at the Nordic countries, let's take Finland, my favorite. Finland's poverty rate is one third of the US poverty rate. One third of the US poverty rate, something like 6%. If you, if you go to children, it's like two, 3%. It's very, very close to zero. Um, and if you exclude college students who are often uh, scored as poor, even though they're, uh, you know, sort of in a weird in-between position, it's even lower, right? I mean, they've, they've come the closest in the world to eradicating poverty. Finland's employment rate, the percentage of people in Finland who are employed is lower than the U.S.'s employment rate. They have less people working than the U.S. has. And one third, the poverty. You know, it, it's just not where poverty comes from. Where poverty comes from is children, elderly people, disabled people, and to some extent, the unemployed. But it's really the big three, though, though, that's where it comes from. And that's where you reduce it. That's where we've cut poverty in the US is by providing welfare benefits to those individuals. And the key here is when you understand JG as an unemployment benefit with activation requirements, the only way it cuts poverty is the cash that you get on the program not the, the raking of the leaves in the park, it's the cash that you get. 
My position is just give them that cash. Do not make them rake the leaves in the park. If they want to rake them, then, you know, fine. But just give them an option to take the cash and do what they will with it. That's where the poverty reduction comes from, not the leaf raking. The other thing I wanted to point out is he talks a lot about full employment, full employment, full employment. I think it's really key to understand that there are two different notions of full employment. The notion of full employment that the left has always been interested in from Michael Kalecki on is not full employment in some kind of technical sense of what percent of the workers are working at any given time. I mean, we know that that's very flexible, right? When retirement picked up, employment went down. When child labor was banned, employment went down, right? Like employment, the level has gone down and down and down and down over the years because we've made choices to make that happen. What is key for full employment is tight labor markets, tight labor markets, which means that it's very difficult for an employer to go out and replace you. But the job guarantee or workfare does not create tight labor markets. What it does is it puts the unemployed in a little, you know, uh, you know, group and has them go out and do some tasks during the day and employers can go and hire out of that pool. It doesn't get rid of the reserve army of the unemployed. It just makes them do kind of, you know, BS tasks during the day in order to receive their unemployment benefits. They can always be grabbed in to undercut the wages of other workers. Randy Ray says this just dead on. He says straight up, the reserve army of unemployed is not gotten rid of. The unemployed still exist. It's just we're making them do some stuff during the day. So they create full employment with loose labor markets, which is not full employment as socialists and leftists understand it. The threat of being fired and replaced is still there. They just pull out of the JG program instead of pulling out of the UI pool. He did point out in his first speech that uh, work fair, job guarantee, whatever you want to call it, has a rich American history. But for whatever reason, uh, job guarantee advocates seem to believe that history ended in 1940. We have been talking about workfare for the last 40, 50 years. If you go search the phrase workfare in the New York Times archives, you can find thousands of articles between like 1970 and 2000 uh, with people fighting about this and arguing about this and arguing about this. And guess what? They, the, 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 the people who are pro it, they all sound like Mark Paul. We're going to, you know, everyone's going to be employed. And it's so important for people's dignity and mental health. And this is actually good for them and so on and so forth. The people who are opposed, which I didn't even know, I just searched this the other day just to see like, what, what were people doing here? I find articles from Francis Fox Piven, opposed. Barbara Ehrenreich, opposed. Down the list, because they say, look, this is punitive harassment of poor people. Give them their benefits, let them find their way into the labor market. Don't beat them over the head with it. And that is realistically what Workfare is, and that's what happened when they did actually implement workfare in the 90s following welfare reform, right? The biggest example of this was Giuliani in New York City, the WEP. He had those workers out there picking up dead animals off the street. He used them to replace workers who used to clean the subways, to replace workers who used to clean the public hospitals. There were vicious fights with the unions, unending lawsuits. It was horrible. The workers in it were felt very, you know, I don't know, a lot of them expressed that they didn't like it, as you might expect. They felt like they were bullied, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this really gets to not just like, hey, it didn't work in the past, but it gets to one of the key confusions of, I feel like the job guarantee people is 
they kind of trick themselves into believing that this is a real job and it's going to have all those same characteristics. Like, so when he talks about, hey, unemployed people, you know, they suffer a lot. And it's like, yeah, they do. But giving them a check in exchange for making them go sweep up the street and the, but the, the check can't go up. They can't negotiate it. There's no promotion. There's nothing like that. You're in this little fixed workfare program. That doesn't fix that problem. And to the extent that people look down upon poor people and people who are in bad jobs and all that kind of stuff, which makes you feel bad. And that happens, by the way, even in the normal private sector, if you work in certain kinds of jobs, they're the lowest job in the economy. They're going to feel bad within our current society. We got to work culturally to make people feel better about being in, you know, bad, you know, low, low status jobs, but they're going to continue to feel that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll say in response to something he pointed out there is I, I think it's very important to when we're talking about unemployment to distinguish between different things. And we don't do this very often. So he brings up the case Deaton. Deaton case, case Deaton stuff about deaths of despair and unemployed people and their mental health and so on and so forth. There have been studies in other countries. There's one I just pulled up, uh, the causal effect of job loss on health, the Danish miracle written by Alexandra Roulette. She basically, you know, hits upon this idea, hey, people talk about how unemployment makes hurts people's mental health and all the rest of it. But, you know, there's different aspects to unemployment. Um, let's go look at a country where they actually take care of unemployed people where they give them really good income replacement, they've got free health care, they've got free child care, the, the welfare state is there for them. The welfare state is not there for them in the US currently, it is there for them in Denmark. And what happens? She goes into Denmark, she uses uh, event study, very sophisticated numbers and all that. And she says, cannot find any health effect of unemployment in Denmark, any. She's looking at antidepressant uses, physical health outcomes, mortality, inpatient. She's looking at the whole battery. They've got great administrative data there. No impact in Denmark on mental health from unemployment or anything like that. That's what we got to do. We got to build up the welfare state. Um, putting people into kind of garbage jobs, you know, that doesn't solve the problem in the way that the welfare state would. And the last thing I'll say is, I do agree. Uh, I, I think he makes a mistake. Um, or I guess I would say this, and maybe it's more of a question to Mark, because I've tried to push this a lot. And that is, my view is basically, hey, if people want to do like volunteer tasks when they're unemployed, look, some people just want to do shit. They want to be busy, right? I feel you. Then just let them do it. But make sure that they can get the money, the same money you want to pay them if they do the, the JG, make sure they can get that same money while looking for work. Like make that an option, make sure if you, hey, look, if you just wanna search for work, that's okay. And you're gonna get the same money, no benefit reduction. You'll get the same money as the people who go and paint the, paint the railing in the park or whatever, you get the same money. Um, if, if we could just get that committed up front and it's not a thing where if you don't sign up and go to the job sites and whatever, you're not gonna, you're, you know, you're gonna lose your benefits. If we could get that done up front, then I would be okay with, that maybe, I mean, I would still worry about like, well, down the line, they're going to make this mandatory, but like in theory, abstractly, if we're debating about it, that that's really the thing I worry about is, is really conditioning the receipt of this money on showing up. So. Thank you, Matt. Um, Mark, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Um, oh, hello. 
um, <laughs> uh, to that because I'm sure you had have some thoughts. But in the mix, I just wanted to aggregate some questions that came to you. Um, so, and this probably relates to what Matt said. But what are the kinds of jobs that a federal job guarantee would offer? Would it be productive work? How would it be administered federally? Uh, devolved to the states? If you feel like it's pertinent in this response, uh, please include that. Great. Um, so there's, you know, Matt, Matt brought up a lot of points and, and I won't be able to have time to respond to all of them, but let me, let me touch on a couple here. Um, so, you know, one point that I think was really important that Matt brought up is thinking about, you know, well, how do we think about unemployment? How do we think about tight labor markets? There's a lot of progressive you know, socialist macroeconomists today that, you know, really argue we want to keep pushing up what's called the labor force participation rate, the number of people that that are out there working. I, I don't think that's right. Um, and I, I think Matt would agree with me here. Um, I think in general, you know, uh, we want, again, we want to provide people with choices. And to me, that's actually what freedom looks like, is that we provide people with the ability to work, um, but we also provide them with economic security if they're either unable or unwilling to work for various various reasons. Um, so, so I agree that you know people shouldn't be homelessness if they don't choose to work. Uh, sorry, people shouldn't be homeless if they don't choose to work or if they can't work for some reason. People shouldn't uh, be subject to poverty uh, because they don't work uh, for some reason, right? Everybody should be provided with universal economic security. I mean, the last thing, um, the last piece that King wrote that was uh, published after his his assassination was. And I quote, we need an economic bill of rights. This would guarantee a job to all people who want to work and are able to work. It would also guarantee an income for all who are not able to work. Some people are too young or too old. Some have physical disabilities. And yet in order to live, they need income. I think, you know, there's a lot more agreement here. But one of my frustrations, um, at least in this conversation with Matt, right? Matt was supposed to not critique a job guarantee, but talk about a basic income. He was supposed to put forth a positive program here. Um, and that's not not exactly what happened. And, and I will say it's a lot easier to critique a program than to put forth a positive program. And no, as I said at the initial onset, no program is a silver bullet. Every program has advantages and some drawbacks that can come along with it. Um, that said, I, I do question, you know, Matt's con continued um, um, bashing of the JG after basically every civil rights icon put this at the center of their program. One of the biggest discrepancies we have in the United States are is the discrimination in labor markets and is the fact that um, black uh, workers on average experience unemployment rates twice as high as white workers. Black workers are put into poverty wages at significantly higher level than white workers. And through a JG at non-poverty wages, what you do is you eradicate that unemployment divide. Now Matt's going to say, okay, well, you now all of a sudden just make, um, you know, put black workers into make work programs. But I, I fundamentally disagree with that characterization. You're providing them with dignity, with a job, and with means of contributing to society. Um, re with regards to the mental health um, effects of work that I mentioned, um, you know, there are literally dozens of studies in the US that document what I outlined. Now, it might be the case that in Denmark, those mechanisms are different. Now, I think that's an important finding and a finding <laughs> we should all talk about. Um, but the fact that matters, that's not the society we have here today in the US. But I think, again, Matt and I would agree that that's a, more the type of society we'd want to be working towards, however. Um, now, you know, the fact of the matter is that in the US, 
when you go around and you meet somebody, one of the first questions most people ask is, what do you do? I think we should abolish that question, right? It's a terrible question because most people all of a sudden talk about work. And that's what that all of a sudden, you know, we're all complex creatures that have uh, multiple different identities, but our job becomes our primary identity. And I think as socialists, we should try to uh, move away from that. And that's one reason I actually love the job guarantee is the job guarantee would provide us with a fantastic mechanism through which to reduce work hours in the United States, right? We could provide people with a reasonable income at 35 hours a week and then at 30 hours a week, and you can actually use it to compete with the private sector and regulate from below. That's how I think about public options. It's a form of regulation from below, where we say, if you don't provide jobs that are up to this quality, then people will go on to the job guarantee program rather than you know take your sh shitty job at McDonald's or Walmart. Um, so you know Matt Matt keeps talking about how these are are workfare jobs that that aren't doing anything productive yet. Um, we know that historically that's simply not the case, nor nor has not been the case whenever we've um, utilized these programs. I mean international examples such as Narega, um, which is the national employment uh, program in India or the Hefe's Hefas program in Argentina also, again, show the same thing. These are not make work programs. They're programs that do fundamentally important work in various societies. Now, what type of work are we talking about? I mean, for me, I, I'm a big fan of participatory democracy. So I'd like to see, you know, once we institute a job guarantee, as I mentioned earlier, this would be uh, guided under the Department of Labor through grants to the uh, various levels of government. And you know, okay, so some of you are in Philly. I unfortunately live in Florida, um, not by choice. <laughs> um, we, you know, we go to our respective communities and we think collectively about, well, what are our priorities? And we determine those priorities and those are the jobs that we, we create. Now, you know, something I, I know Matt's pointed out and he's right on this is, you know, a lot of these jobs are highly skilled jobs, right? And that, that is true. But where do workers acquire skills? They acquire skills on the job, okay? They acquire skills on the job. The last place that, that firms want to hire workers from is the unemployment lines, whether they're getting unemployment insurance benefits or uh, basic income or you know, whatever other um, you know, um, cash transfer from, from the welfare state. That's the, the last thing that workers want. What they want to see is a positive track record of employment. And that's one thing that the job guarantee provides them with. Um, the, the final thing um, you know, I'll, I'll mention here is that the job guarantee, I think, you know, takes a little bit of imagination, a little bit more imagination than I think Matt's been able to put into it so far here. I mean, what he's advocating for as that, that I can tell is essentially a transition towards you know basic income replacements rather than full-on basic service replacements. Um, although maybe I'm maybe I'm mi misunderunderstanding him, and so please clarify. Um, benefits. It's just unemployment benefits. That's all I'm advocating for. No unemployment benefits with no no work, no work requirements. Yeah. So I mean, we're on the same page on unemployment benefits, but we're not on the same page of on terms of the importance to work and the fact that these workers put to work through the government can provide us all with socially meaningful things. I mean, again, right now, climate change is the biggest crisis that we face. Um, every single building of which there are tens of millions across this country needs to be decarbonized. It's a tremendous amount of work. We need 
tens of millions of workers to engage in forest management. I live in Florida. We need to replenish our wetlands and uh, plant um, seagrasses and oyster bars in order to protect us from the increasingly intensifying storms that are taking place. We need to reforest large swaths of the country. There just there is no shortage of work to be done. Um, what we currently lack isn't the financial resources. It's not the workers. It's not the know-how. It's the political will. And I think the job guarantee is, is the appropriate next step. Thank you, Mark. I'd actually love, um, Matt, for you to respond to that last point. So um, as Mark suggests, climate change will require massive reindustrialization of the economy and the creation of socially useful work that currently is not considered profitable by capitalist markets. So um, thinking about like a positive program, how would you address this? And how do you see like a jobs program as different from workfare? I think some clarity on that would be helpful. Yeah, so I, I think this is actually, because it has gotten a lot of discussion in the climate context. And I think it's, uh, uh, you know, that's a very important um, point to touch on. I wanna, I'll say a couple of things first. One, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, Let's let's imagine you're an oil worker and um, you uh, you make eighty thousand dollars a year, which is not uncommon. They they do all right. Um, and uh, someone comes to you and says, "Hey, we're going to have to you know do this climate transition, and uh, you're going to lose your job, but uh, no worries, we've got a thirty thousand dollar a year job for you, um, doing tree planting, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be." that's not gonna be convincing to them, right? What you're gonna have to do is say, we will cover your income, right? And the Medicare for All bill actually does this. They, in the Medicare for All bill, if you get fired because you were a medical biller or you worked for an insurance company or whatever, they say, we're gonna give you 100% of your prior income for two years and we'll help you try to find another job. That's a much more compelling proposal than you're gonna drop down to 30,000 a year. Um, and that's what unemployment benefits provide you, that the JG doesn't. Now, separate from that, yeah, there's a whole lot of work we have to do. My view is that just hire people in a normal way to do normal kinds of work, right? We have uh, park rangers. We have a national park service, right? I don't know how many people they employ, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands. I don't know how big it is. Just give them more money and say, go hire people. Go hire the people that you need to do this work. Um, there, you, you know, you don't need to ever join these two things, right? So people who lose their job, give them their income replacement, let them figure their way back in, give them really nice income replacement. That's what they're going to need to be reassured and feel okay about the transition. And then also separately, hire, 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 hire to do what you need to do around energy transitions and all the rest of it. So like, for example, one of the proposals uh, we put out a people's policy project was to use the Tennessee Valley Authority to build a whole bunch of clean energy installations, whether that's solar or wind or hydro or nuclear, or, you know, whatever. You know, some people don't like nuclear, but you know, um, and but they they can do that, right? They have tons of employees and they know how. They've been running for 60, 70 years. That was a New Deal program as well. You know, you you don't need to pull them off the unemployment line to do that. Um, so that's again this sort of basic view is separate these two things: hiring people to do public works. And keeping people protected if they if they're out of work, don't you don't need to bring them together. Um, and if you if you're hiring people to do public work, 
you probably will end up hiring a lot of people who are unemployed, right? They're going to be searching for work. Um, if you don't hire them, you hire someone who's already employed, now there's a job opening and maybe they'll go get that one, right? So the, it's the combination of the two that's not, uh, that's not necessary. I have to say you're an expert multitasker, Matt. <laughs> so, so Mark, maybe you could um, respond to, to that and, and the question of um, making these jobs minimum wage jobs in particular. I think we've seen a bunch of questions about the potential problems of making these public works programs just minimum wage employment. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. So uh, let me first respond to Matt. I mean, in terms of the, the climate transition, and I've written on this extensively, um, you know, what we need is a massive investment program to the tune of, you know, about $1 trillion per year for the next 10 years moving forward, okay? The green the environmental transition must be investment-led. Now that's gonna require a tremendous amount of hiring. It's gonna require increasing existing public agencies. It's gonna require creating additional new public agencies. And it's gonna require establishing some form of just transition for fossil fuel workers and communities in order to make this you know, both politically viable and to um, recognize the fact that these workers and communities for decades have put their lives on the line in order to make sure that we can, you know, power our homes and have these very conversations, with, you know, right here. Now we're in agreement with that, but that's not to say that, you know, that such a program is not going to eradicate unemployment. So all I'm saying is that these two things are complements, not mutually exclusive. Again, if we are running a significantly hotter economy through a combination of monetary and fiscal policy, as we should be, then the job guarantee you know, what it should be doing is functioning as a vital fallback position, but it not, isn't necessarily going to be the, the leading answer of employing America, of employing people in the United States. That, that's not how, how it should be envisioned. One other thing I'll mention, again, this is kind of the, the, the easy part of Matt's job by just critiquing rather than putting forth a full positive alternative, is when we talk about a job guarantee or when we talk about basic income, let's remember that there are, you know, more than 31 flavors of each, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to structure a job guarantee or a basic income. Um, and you know, I've, I can drop in the chat, I've written a couple papers on this, but um, a lot of the critiques I think Matt's levied are critiques against uh, Randy Ray, an early advocate of the job guarantee. And, and you know, I also critique Ray in different instances. And, and, and so I think that, you know, there's healthy debate within these broad umbrella terms of a job guarantee or, or um, uh, basic income. Now, uh, the concern about these jobs being minimum wage. So the, the way that I understand um, you know, the job guarantee is it functions as a way to increasingly raise the minimum wage and put pressure towards the bottom of the labor market to increase those and make all jobs decent jobs. Right? Um, that way, it, it effectively eliminates poverty level jobs in the United States rather than most employment subsidy programs that we have here in the United States, the biggest biggest one being the earned income tax credit, uh, simply subsidizes shitty jobs is the way that I think about that. Um, I think we should stop doing that. And I think instead we should provide decent jobs to all who want one. And of course, people can go work in the private sector if they so desire. Now, um, 
you know, I, we can debate about what the right uh, level of compensation is in a job guarantee. In our proposal, the average wage is $32,000 plus benefits. Ideally, those benefits should not be part of the program. Benefits should be universal. Um, but, you know, again, this depends on sequencing of what we do, but health insurance, child care, um, and other things should absolutely not be tied to employment. Um, however, that is the unfortunate world we live in today. And I think that's one way, you know, if we were to pass a job guarantee first and we had six different candidates for the 2020 Democratic primary endorsing a job guarantee, if we were to pass that, you know, first in terms of a large, bold socialist legislation, that would be able to function as a way to force all other employers to provide those basic services, um, which would also help get those employers in support of the government providing universal basic services um, because, you know, employers know providing childcare is expensive, providing healthcare is expensive and providing all these additional French benefits, you know, paid vacation days and so on and so forth. So I think that's a, a really important part of the argument. Um, but, you know, is, is an average wage of $32,000 enough? You know, I, I think we can debate that and I think we can talk about you know, in, increasing that and, and really putting a squash on inequality, both from the bottom and from the top, right? We should have an absolute maximum income in the United States, and we should have a minimum income in the United States as well that is significantly higher than what we have today, which is essentially zero. Thank you, Mark. Um, I, there are I want to make sure that I'm uh, addressing some of the questions in the chat. So, so Matt, feel free to respond to, to Mark. But in addition, I've seen a couple of questions to you about um, why employment is important. Um, so it doesn't just provide socially useful work for society or make people less depressed, but it also facilitates the possibility of workers organizing and demanding economic rights, which is one path that socialists think uh, is a way to fight poverty. So can you address that and also some of what Mark said? Yeah, so, you know, again, it goes back to if people are unemployed and they're receiving their check. And my view is let them receive their check and job seek. And the alternative is come up with some things to do while they are also job seeking. Um, how does that increase worker power in any way? I mean, the, most of the advocates of the job guarantee, not necessarily Mark, but Ray, Mosler, Mitchell, they say that worker power is diminished by the job guarantee relative to unemployment benefits. The reason being that, you know, hey, if you're on, uh, if you're on, if you are on unemployment benefits and you also have to get up each morning and do a bunch of, you know, stuff you don't necessarily want to do. Um, you're going to be more eager to take a job in the private sector. You will act as a more ferocious reserve army and willing to go into that private sector. Whereas if you're on benefits and you have some time to relax, think about it, try to find a job that fits, you're less ferocious about getting back into that labor market and getting out of, of the unemployment program. So, you know, in general, like that has been the position for the most part has been that the JG actually undermines worker worker power suppresses the power of workers to bargain for wages because the JG workers act as a, as a buffer stock, as a reserve army that employers can go in and pluck back out. Now, I suppose the question is really about, hey, if they're in the JG, then can't you unionize them? 
I don't know. Obviously, that's a question. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? They did try to unionize like ACORN and SEIU tried to unionize the WEP workers in New York City and were unsuccessful. Um, I don't really know what unionization, uh, you know, are they allowed to bargain over their wages? I believe the wages are set by the statute, right? Whatever the JG statute would be, that that sets the wages. There, are, There's like a formula and like in Marx, there's like a formula and it's based on age and experience and education and so on. But there's no indication that you could like bargain up your wages. Um, but also sep- separately, <laughs> what, I mean, what would a union do in that context? Like, you go on strike. The jobs are, by the way, by definition, not essential, necessary jobs because these are jobs that we fill when we have a lot of unemployed people. If we have a whole, if mo- if people are not that unemployed and things are kicking off well in the private sector, the JG program shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. So the nature of this work is that it's not necessary. Like you, you can get along without it. And so you go on strike, and what? Okay, you know, no more pay. And then what, like I, what, what happens, right? There's no, there's, it's not a normal kind of job that works like that. Like nothing is really stopped that needs to continue happening. Um, and then like what you, they, what they fire you and you, you sign back up to the JG, I guess. Like there's nowhere for you to go, right? It's, it's a, it's a sort of a mind, uh, it's a sort of a mind melting thing because fundamentally it's not a job, it's unemployment benefits, right? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really, I don't see where the leverage is in saying, you know, I think back to the Giuliani thing, you know, if you're someone who goes and sweeps the park, which is not strictly necessary, and you're like, I'm not sweeping the park today, if you don't do what? Increase pay, which I'm not allowed to increase because the statute sets the pay? Uh, you know, I don't know. It doesn't I like clean parks. <laughs> well, so, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, may, maybe it would do something in, the, in, that, in, that, in that way. If you could convince enough people that the work was really, really necessary. Um, and then, I don't know what, they would, they would vote to have the legislators increase the wage. Um, I, I don't know. It just seems a little off to me. Um, but, but, yeah, oh, 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 with Mark's, Mark's point about, so I, I don't really have a problem with, like, the $30,000 or the $32,000. I mean, the way I view it is that is, that is a minimum benefit, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, and again, this goes back to my way of viewing it, but I view it that as like the basic unemployment benefit. Remember recently when the CARES Act passed for about two or three months there, everyone who was unemployed was getting at least 600, was getting at least 600 a week, which is basically a $15 wage for doing that, for just being unemployed. So that's basically where Mark's uh, thing is. The problem with it is when you view it as the thing that's going to protect workers when they lose their jobs. If you're going from 80 to 30, that is not protecting you. You've lost your house. You can't pay your mortgage, right? Because your, your consumption level is set based on, on your prior wage. So it's when you go from 80 to 30, that's the problem. Um, 30 as a basic minimum, it, it, you know, that doesn't seem like a big, that seems like possibly reasonable. Like you said, maybe it could be 35, maybe it could be 40. Yeah, you know. Can I ask a question, Matt, of your program though? Yeah. So just a, maybe a clarifying question. If, if, you know, workers get unemployment benefits that are, you know, roughly as- associated, you know, near their previous wage. Why would a worker ever go back to work? Well, you know, people, people, so, so it wouldn't be exactly the same. I, I always think about it in, you know, in terms of the, be- the, the best countries that have done the best job of this, right? If you think about, for example, Finland or, or Norway, right? And the way the benefits there are structured is, I think about Finland in particular is you get about 400 days. I think that's the current amount. You get 400 days of income based of income replacement unemployment benefits, right? So 
of what you used to make. The idea is you go and you search and whatever. When the 400 days is up, you go down to the the 30,000. So there is a little bit of a clock there, Um, but you've got 400 days, 500 days. And, you know, we can even look at our own statistics here. People are not unemployed for that long. Not very many of them. Um, So I guess maybe the running out after 400 to 500 days might might be a bit of an incentive. Um, You don't ever fully run out. You'd go down to sort of like the basic amount. But um, but also just, you know, uncertainty, getting back into work um, and, and the fact that, you know, you did take a little bit of a hit, you know, not, you know you're down to 90 percent or 85 percent instead of 100 percent. So. Mark, maybe um, you could uh, kind of respond to the, the worker power question, because I think a lot of us uh, on this Zoom call are interested in this question. Um, and then we should probably wrap up just because uh, it's nearing into the hour, hour 30 mark. Sure, sure. So um, uh, in the, for those of you who might not have seen in the chat, I dropped a couple of the primary papers I've written on this topic in case you're interested in reading more. Um, now, in terms of worker power, I mean, I absolutely see the JG as essential to rebuilding worker power here in the United States. And, and this is not only my idea, but also how um, you know, King um, and uh, Rustin in particular, uh, Bayard Rustin talked about a job guarantee as well. Um, they thought that, you know, look, it simply undermines the boss's authority when workers have a reasonable fallback position. I, I think we all agree with that, right? Like the, the most important thing to building worker, one of the most important things to building worker power is providing workers with better fallback positions. So that threat of job loss, that threat of retaliation from the boss um, is, is, you know, reduced substantially, right? Right now, unfortunately, in the United States. Um, if, I could, if I could just ask it, because if, if you, if the boss threatens to fire you um, and you're like, can you make 80,000 a year? And you can't really come back to them and say, you know, I'll go make 30. That's not a, you But know, you and I are, yeah, I mean, nowhere in any of my proposals have I, um, uh, suggested to cut unemployment and benefits. I mean, again, you and I are in, in agreement that we should have robust unemployment benefits right. for it, a, a it fairly long time. It is an unemployment benefits that gives you that resistance. It's not the minimum wage JG. The minimum wage JG doesn't give anyone the ability to say F you to the boss, except for other minimum wage workers. Anyone who makes it over that, which is like 90%, 95% of the workforce, it's not a so so as a matter of fact quit threat is what i'm saying today i'm gonna yeah, go so, so so it's interesting that you bring that up so you know uh, the the jg as we propose it would effectively raise the wage of 41 million americans so for the, for the minimum wage hike that's implied in it but you could also just bump the minimum wage to 15 in the flsa and you've done the same thing right well we can and we should bump the minimum wage to 15 um, but then providing, you know, providing workers with this fallback position um, still does indeed provide them with viable additional in that in that instance, viable alternatives. And again, it is one reason why we think about the JG as setting a floor in the market and as a way to increasingly uh, raise that floor in the market. Right. One way to do that is through uh, you know, increasing the minimum wage, which we should be doing. I um, mean, another way to do that is through a JG. But but right now, workers can fundamentally, you know, we, we remove the threat of unemployment um, through passing a JG, which is one of workers' biggest fears. Go out and talk to workers. It is on people's minds every day is losing their job. 
Um, and, and, you know, and for workers who are, are you know, for the 40% of Americans who uh, only don't even have $400 in their savings account right now, these, the most vulnerable workers, uh, JG provides them with this, you know, absolute security that they're going to be able to get basic benefits as well as pay right away. Now, in our program, actually, workers can make up to $50,000 as well. There's, so there is some upward mobility in the program um, based on previous experience and based on time in the program. So, you know, not everybody's making just $30,000 here. Um, but, you know, the, the, the JG does function as, you know, as a way to eliminate that threat from the from the employer, and and so doing, I think that you'll have you'll have a significant increase um, in worker activity, both in organizing and strike activity. Great, thank you, Mark. Uh, Matt, do you want? I see you uh, looking. Yeah, I just want to just very quick. I know I interrupted him a little bit on it, but I just want to key in on this because the. <laughs> The whole point, and, and, and Mark might have a different perspective of this, but if you're talking about Randy Ray or, or Mitchell or Kelton or Pavlina, if you read their whole body of work, their whole point is that, in fact, the JG is not going to empower non-JG workers. And the reason they say that is because if it did, it would create wage price spirals and then we would have all these problems, right? And, and the way that they argue that it's not going to protect workers in the non-JG sector is they say, look, if you only are going to be able to make a fixed wage in the JG sector, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter what it is, 30, 40, whatever, anyone who makes over that does not have a, a credible quit threat. They do not have the ability to go to the employer and say, hey, I can always go to the JG if you don't treat me right. They don't have that ability to do that. And in fact, if they try to do that, it's not just that they don't have the ability to do that. It's that if they start being obstinate with their employer, which is a term Ray uses, the employer will go to the JG people and say, come on board. I hear you're only making minimum wage there. I pay more than that. The JG acts as the reserve army of the unemployed. It is the reserve army of the unemployed. So it doesn't protect you from any of that stuff. You need tight labor markets to protect you from that, which the JG doesn't offer. Tight labor markets are going to come from fiscal monetary policy and things, things of that sort. So I have to say one quick thing here, if it's okay. Um, Matt, Matt touched on a really important point. So for, first of all, um, I, I my model of the JG and the one that I work on with Sandy, Darity, and Derek Hamilton is a bit different than the MMT advocates. Um, so I, I do want to make that clear. And, and for us, we do structure it in a way that um, makes um, uh, the JG <clears throat> a credible threat to employers and a way to increase worker power. But Matt touched on something. Do you actually have a quit option? If you just if you're getting harassed at your workplace and you flat out quit your job, you don't you in many instances you don't qualify for unemployment insurance. Workers can't really quit and then get unemployment insurance. What are those workers supposed to do? Sexual harassment in the workplace, racism in the workplace, other forms of abuse in the workplace. A JG provides you with a more reasonable fallback position in order to squash discrimination that occurs in the workplace. You can make quitters eligible for unemployment benefits. They're eligible for unemployment benefits in other countries. So, I, so, I mean, again, this is one of the differences between putting forth a positive agenda and, and just That's critiquing, right? Agenda. It's what you say without <laughs> the work requirements. I mean, right? Unemployment benefits. That's the only difference we have is do you make unemployed people work or not? And then income replacement, maybe. I mean, but you know, 
I don't know, because you also support some of that. So, Well, um, I hate to cut this off because I feel like uh, there's been some generative debate, um, but I hope that um, folks that are on this call and are interested uh, should check out both Matt's posts on this as well as Mark's, um, as well as Mark's uh, book that is forthcoming. Um, and I just want to thank both of our speakers for engaging in this debate. Um, it's been a heated topic, but I feel like it's happened in disparate circles. So I'm glad that we were able to kind of come together and face off uh, <laughs> in person or um, on this call. So thank you both.